Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 362, Meet the Godwins. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Zach, Brendan, and Finnegan for signing up already. History is just the story of humans across time. And therefore, like humanity, history is varied. It's emotional. It's complex. And often, and often, it's just f***ing messy. King Edward of England was pushing 40. And his new bride, Edith, was only about 22. Now, if you're a modern royal watcher, or even just a fan of the crown you'll know that this is pretty close to the same age gap that was stretching between Charles and Diana. So I'm sure that was going great. But on top of this, Edward and Edith would have also had to navigate a significant cultural gap. You see, Edith was a noble woman from an Anglo-Danish noble family. And yeah, I know, her grandfather had that brief bout of piracy back in the day thanks to getting backstabbed by Edric Strayona and his cronies. But since then, Godwin, his son, had managed to get himself back into the aristocratic clubhouse, starting with Canute's reign. And he'd been in the halls of power ever since, which meant that Edith had been raised in, or at least raised adjacent to, the Anglo-Danish court. So she was refined, culturally, aesthetically, and politically. And while it is clear that her father, Godwin, stood to gain quite a lot from having yet another tie to power... Edith was actually quite an asset to the crown, and for Edward, she possessed an undeniable diplomatic savvy. Immediately after the wedding, Edith hired on a French femme de chambre, and her name was Matilda. Now, of course, any lady would have wanted a servant, but by hiring a French servant, it tells us that Edith knew she needed a translator, someone who'd be able to help her adapt to her husband's Norman ways. And Matilda, for her part did her best to integrate with English courtly life. And she soon married a wealthy English thane named Elfweird, because in the political world of medieval marriage, it was smart to bind even your servants to those who walked in the halls of power. But it wasn't only Edith who needed a hand getting dressed in the morning. King Edward had been an exiled orphan for large portions of his childhood, living among the French-speaking Vikings of Normandy. And I'm sure that he learned many useful things when he was there, but it seems like maintaining your appearance wasn't one of them. Apparently, Edward showed little to no interest in what he wore, nor what his palace looked like, or even how his courtly entourage were presenting themselves. And granted, he was the king, so he inherited a good amount of things from his predecessor, and as such, we can assume that the group wasn't walking around in rags or rolling around in rickety wagons. But based on surviving records, the royal accoutrements weren't exactly up to snuff either. And when your power is built upon people believing that you're powerful, a king's appearance has to radiate majesty. So Edith took it upon herself to ensure that the king wore and was surrounded by the medieval visual language of power. Bling. And she didn't just focus on his clothing. She tricked out the whole crib. Soon the king was walking on fine Spanish carpets, strolling past beautiful gold-embroidered tapestries, and when he was out riding his horse, his horse's gold had gold. 
The saddle and the bridle were all intricately gilded with magnificent golden beasts. Even the king's staff was decked out in jewels and gold work. Edith whipped the court into fashion shape, and in short order, the halls of power looked the part of an English king. And we're told that Edward accepted this help happily, complimenting her work to their courtiers. And honestly, gratitude was the appropriate response here. Edith, not Edward, understood how power worked in England. She might have been nearly half his age, but she'd been raised in these halls, and she knew where the levers were. And the importance of this kind of knowledge is underscored in the record of a single event, when the royal couple took a trip to Abingdon Abbey. It was a trip, actually, that was also attended by the Queen Mother, Emma. Now, according to the record from Abingdon, while visiting, Queen Edith took an interest in the Oblates. That was the name for the young boys who were living and training at the monastery. And she noticed that while the fully ordained monks ate a normal lunch, the Oblates ate an hour earlier, and they were only given bread. Noticing the obvious issue of nutrition, she brought it up to the order, and the monks assured her that this was entirely normal. Edith, not happy with that answer, asked Edward to assign some funding to the abbey for the purpose of improving the young oblate's diet. And King Edward said that, of course, he would love to give the children something to eat. If only someone would give him some money so then he could pass some of that down and help those poor kids out. Yeah, you heard that right. The King of England, the man whose horse was practically gold-plated, was pleading poverty when he was asked to help some malnourished children. How is the myth of let them eat cake so well known while this story isn't? I mean, even for the medieval era, this wasn't a good look. And Edith, ever the diplomat, delicately sidestepped her husband and said that she had a village that had been given to her recently and she'd like to transfer it to the abbey. Edward agreed to this, and hopefully... The boys were soon given some vegetables and maybe some cheese for lunch. Now, the scribes of Abingdon described this exchange between Edith and Edward as lighthearted, which has been interpreted by many historians as evidence that the relation between them was a positive one. But I'm not so sure. Because the obvious point here is that you can never tell what a relationship, especially a political relationship, is really like behind closed doors. But beyond that, whether or not they were happy is really the least interesting part of this tale. What's much more interesting is that Edith, as a new queen of England, was clearly trying to help her husband curry favor with the church, the very institution whose support he desperately needed. And when her husband boorishly refused to take the hint, she managed to salvage the operation and make it happen anyway. It is in this event in particular that we see Edith step firmly into the role of queen. And, as is the case with the courtly finery, she did it in a way that tells us that she understood how power worked in England. Another fascinating detail of this visit is that the queen mother, Emma, was also there. She had managed to get herself back in Edward's good graces, or at least got in well enough to be able to take the trip to the abbey. And in previous years, with previous kings, it had been Emma who was instrumental to these diplomatic affairs. In fact, members who've listened to the most recent members episode will know that there are even pieces of religious art from the reign of Canute that reflect Emma's role in the giving of gifts. 
and that these pieces of art actually might be subtly telling the viewer that it was really Queen Emma, not King Canute, that was holding power. But here, in Abington, all of that had changed. Edward was married, Edith was now his queen, and it was Edith, not Emma, who was shepherding the king's ecclesiastical relationships. And actually, this fall from grace wasn't just constrained to diplomacy. Emma was out of power in general. As soon as Edward married Edith, Emma vanished from the witness lists. And I wish we had more information regarding this dynamic. Because it seems like Edward vacillates wildly in his relationship to his mother. And in turn, Emma's relationship with power varied with it. And now, with Edith fully taking charge and redesigning, literally, Edward's court... Well, Emma seems to have been replaced entirely. And she doesn't strike me as the sort of person who would have taken that very well. But I think the biggest takeaway from this situation is that the Godwins were a force to be reckoned with. And their acquisition of power didn't just manifest symbolically. The Godwin family was playing this game so well that by the time of the Doomsday Book, the land holdings linked to their dynasty would dwarf even their closest rivals. Neither the family of Earl Seward of Northumbria nor the family of Earl Leofrich of Mercia could hold a candle to it. Earl Godwin wasn't just playing the game. He was winning. And the key with dynastic games is that it isn't enough to be good at it yourself. You need to develop your successor. And then the spare. And preferably the grandkids too. Because medieval politics were bloody by nature, so you needed a deep bench of people who were well-trained, capable, and ready descendants. And given how well Queen Edith was handling the reins, it seems that Godwin had done a pretty good job of teaching her the family business. And to be honest, she was doing such a good job that I bet Godwin wished that Edith was his firstborn son. But she wasn't. The Vita Edwardi contains a poem that tells us about Earl Godwin's children, and it compares them to four rivers running out of paradise. Now, Edith is named specifically, and she's given credit for advising the king and ensuring England's peace. However, none of the other children are named. The poem rapidly gets more abstract, and it creates a wish that the other children will nourish the kingdom in time. It describes the children of Godwin as divinely entwined, and carefully tending the hope of the kingdom from their high station. Well, actually describes most of the children that way. The poem does concede that Godwin's children, like all children, were different people. It says, quote, Themselves they loudly praise, born from one womb, issue of various kind, unlike in birth, in flesh and voice, place, space, and time and motion, end quote. So they're all from the same mother, but they weren't all the same in obvious ways like their physical aspects of voices and appearance, but also they are different in how they moved throughout the world. The poem seems to be hesitating to tell us something, but then it just comes out and says it. Quote, the other gulping monster seeks the depths, attacks its root and mouths the parent trunk and holds until as doomed, the breath of life creates a creature from a lifeless dam and losing grip, pursues again its prey, end quote. And even if you're not into poetry, you can hear the tonal shift that has taken place here. The author does not like this kid, and historians have a pretty good guess as to which child was the gulping monster. And Frank Barlow argues that it must have been Godwin's firstborn son. 
Swain Godwinson. Now Swain, like all the Godwin family, was rich and powerful. But he was also prideful and just a glorious mess. In fact, according to one tradition out of Worcester, this man was such a diva that he couldn't even acknowledge that he was the child of Godwin at all. Being the son of the most powerful Earl just wasn't enough for him. So instead, he claimed that Knut was his real dad, not Godwin. And that is probably why the poem carefully mentions that all the children had the same mother. Because Swain Godwinson was out there claiming that he was Knut's secret love child. And it was a claim that he actually made in front of his own mother, Githa. Now, Githa was, of course, a noblewoman. But honestly, station here probably didn't matter all that much. Because Githa did what I think we all would have done. She just about passed out from indignation. But then she did something that I'm not sure many of us would do. She went through the trouble of producing witnesses to Swain's conception. People who you can only assume were the dearest friends who would be willing to swear that it was Godwin who fathered this godforsaken child. Which I'm sure was a conversation and disclosure that no one enjoyed. And it's exactly the sort of sh** that kept me from going into family law. But the awkwardness of this all didn't phase Swain one bit. Because if Swain was a 2020 guy, he would have definitely had his own YouTube channel. So apparently, while Edith was carefully helping Edward maintain peace in the realm, we had Logan Paul over here calling their mom a slut, peacocking through every important town, and generally causing a scene wherever he went. Which, as is the case with any parent of a spirited child, left Godwin in a weird position. I mean, he was the head of the family, and this wasn't just his son, which would have been bad enough. It was his firstborn son. This was really bad. So what was a medieval lord to do? Well, you give him more power and responsibility. Why? Because primogeniture is a hell of a drug. So adding to Swain's existing lands, which were already substantial, Godwin, through Edward, gave his son the earldoms of Herefordshire and Gloucestershire, which meant that now his lands were pressing up against the territory of Wales, a territory already largely under the dominion of King Gruffith at Fluellen. And this was a hostile border. King Gruffith had a body count to him. In fact, there are indications that shortly after taking power, King Gruffith quickly moved on the power structures of Powys and sought to remove English influence from his territory. And in the case of one particularly wealthy land magnate who was friendly to England, that removal of influence appears to have been rather forceful. We're told that he died in what was described as a civil brawl, but was probably actually an assassination. And shortly afterwards, Edwin, the brother of Earl Leofric of Mercia, led an invasion into Powys, which was probably a retaliation for that killing. But as we talked about in an earlier episode, King Gruffith ambushed and defeated that invasion, and he didn't just defeat the army, he also managed to kill Earl Leofric's brother. So, unsurprisingly, Leofric and Gruffith were now rivals engaged in a blood feud. And this was the border that Godwin's fail son was now sharing. I'm sure it's fine. And a hostile border isn't exactly the place where I'd want to put my ridiculous wild child, but here we are. Maybe Godwin was thinking that the added responsibility would finally force Swain to grow up. Or maybe he was just hoping that nature would take its course, 
It's really hard to say. But either way, this puts Swain in dangerously close proximity to King Gruffith at Pluellen. And it also gives us one of those weird moments of historical symmetry. Because if you'll recall, only a few years earlier, it was Gruffith who was some lazy, sproggy kid who was playing in the ashes of the fire. He tur- but since then, he'd turned his life around and was now a first-class medieval killer. He managed to become a bandit king, and then he transitioned into a real king, possibly through some palace intrigue. And so as far as Dark Age nobility was concerned, Gruffith was quite the success story. So best of luck, Swain. Now, King Gruffith, for his part, had been quite busy in Wales since he sent the Mercians packing. His main focus, and his main political rival in Wales, was King Huolap Edwin of Dehybarth the great-grandson of King Huel Thaw. Now, King Huel, like the land magnate from Powys, had an affinity for the English, and might have even had land interests on both sides of the border. And the Welsh Chronicle tells us that Gruffith immediately swept into Dehybarth, deposed Huel, and seized power. But that simple entry hides what was likely a much more difficult and bloody reality. While Gruffith was able to seize the northern portion of Dehybarth, King Hul was able to retreat to the southwest of his kingdom and dig in. And there, with the support of Ireland, he was able to hold off Gruffith for years. But there were losses. Two years into the conflict, in 1041, we're told that a battle was fought at Pencatter, which is about 10 miles north of Camarthen, which means that they were fighting at the intersection of Devid Caradigian and Estrad Tewi. Now this was a strategically significant spot, which means that far from the war for supremacy being settled quickly, as the Welsh Chronicle implies, the fight for Dehybarth probably lingered for years. And at the Battle of Pencader, King Gruffith gained the upper hand. In the course of the fighting, he captured King Hul's wife, and he kept her as his own. Yikes. And this unfortunate detail suggests a few things. First, that this battle might have been King Gruffith catching King Hul's royal court unaware while it was traveling. And second, that King Gruffith was probably doing what his forebears had done in the past, using marriage links to southern nobility to justify later annexation. Albeit, he was doing it with an awful twist. And an account by Walter Mapp suggests that the poor woman was actually gorgeous, and that Gruffith loved her ardently, but those affections weren't returned. Gee, I wonder why. But despite this loss, King Hul remained in power in the south, and we even have a record of him fighting off a Viking horde in roughly the same area on the following year. So Gruffith's conquest could not have been complete, and probably for good reason, because Hul wasn't the only one dealing with Vikings. Gwyneth had a lot of coastline, and considering the proximity of Dublin, it's no shocker that King Gruffith had Viking problems of his own. On the same year that King Hul fought off that Viking horde, King Gruffith was captured by Vikings out of Dublin. Unfortunately, the Welsh Chronicle doesn't tell us anything else. We do have some 16th and 17th century authors who claim that this kidnapping was actually the machination of King Hul, or maybe Cunan, son of King Iago who Gruffith had replaced or possibly killed. 
And those sources claim that while the Vikings captured him, this operation went pear-shaped and the people of Gwyneth fought the Viking band and freed their king before they could board the ships. But, considering that these authors were writing five to six hundred years later, and they're the only people to say this, I think the story is unlikely. And the truth is, we don't know what happened. Only that somehow King Gruffith was captured by Vikings, and somehow he got free. And then, at some point over the next two years, King Gruffith defeated Hule, seized a Highbarth, and Hule fled to Ireland as an exile. But Hule wasn't out of the fight just yet. Once in Ireland, he worked to gather a huge army of Viking supporters. And in 1044, he and his Viking army sailed back across the Irish Sea and went straight into the mouth of the Tui, heading towards Camarthen. But King Gruffith and his army were waiting. And the scribes tell us, quote, There was a mighty battle, and many of the host of the foreigners and his own host were slain at the mouth of the river Tui. And there, Huel was slain, and Gruffith prevailed. End quote. King Gruffith was now reigning over Gwyneth, Powys, and Dehybarth. Few, if any, of his predecessors could boast that degree of power. But with great power comes great headaches, especially in Wales. The Welsh nobility were fiercely independent, protective of their position, and ambitious. I mean, that's how he got Gruffith in the first place. They were also given to blood feuds that could spiral out of control. And less than a year after his resounding victory, King Gruffith found himself in conflict with his one-time allies, the sons of Rhyddarch. Now, these boys were part of a relatively new dynasty that was as much of an upstart as Gruffith's own dynasty. And it also had an equally shady history of how it went about gaining power. And apparently, their alliance with King Gruffith only lasted as long as King Hule lived. Because now, they were enemies. And we're told that, quote, There was a great deceit and treachery between Gruffith and Rhys, the sons of Rhyddarch, and Gruffith ap Llywelyn. End quote. Yeah, one of the sons is also named Gruffith. I'm sorry about that. But this entry has led many scholars to believe that following the treachery, Gruffith ap Hrithurk, not King Gruffith ap Llywelyn, was ruling over to Highbarth. But looking at the chronicle, we find no entries that back that interpretation up. And chances are, Gruffith ap Hrithurk merely broke off a portion of de Highbarth and ruled independently while making efforts to gain a larger foothold in the region. Or maybe as a rebel leader heading up an insurgency into Highbarth. It's highly unlikely, though, that he ruled independently and in total. And we think that because there are other records that indicate that King Gruffith ap Llywelyn still had authority in some of De Highbarth. But that being said, whoever was holding supremacy over De Highbarth, there were rumblings of rebellion that were building. And shortly after the treachery of the sons of Rhyddurk, King Gruffith was dealt yet another blow. He didn't yet realize it but the nobility of Estrad Tewi had been plotting against him. And whatever they were planning must have been big and had to have involved a lot of men. Because here's what we're told. Quote, About seven score men of Gruffith ap Llywelyn's warband were slain through the treachery of the leading men of Estrad Tewi. End quote. Now, as you know, Gruffith's warband would have been his personal guard. So this meant high-ranked nobles. It meant family members. It meant any warrior of note that was loyal to Gruffith. 
It meant his closest friends. So 140 of King Griffith's most trusted and most skilled allies were now dead. And considering the size of the massacre and the depth of the casualties, it's likely that King Griffith barely escaped with his life. So how could this have happened? Well, once again, we're not given details. But if the goal was to kill or dethrone King Griffith, the battle had been a failure. He remained in power, which itself should give you a sense of the scale of his household. Imagine losing that many men and still having enough to hold on to your crown. But while he remained in power, the event still shook Griffith. And we know that because he made a few policy changes. Up until this point, the Welsh king had been insular and showed no interest in making foreign alliances. And when he needed force, he drew only from his own military that was local to the region. He didn't seek outside assistance. Not until now. Now, he needed help. But from where? Obviously, the Vikings of Dublin were out after that whole kidnapping business. And he was in a blood feud with Erleofrich of Mercia, so it would probably be a bad idea to invite him over to play swords. But he did have a new neighbor. The Godwins. The very family who had the ear of the King of England. And one of them was even the Queen. If you're shopping for allies, you could do worse than a ruthless, ambitious family who were known for making clever political moves. So Gruffith made a proposal one that was likely intended to test this new strategy. According to the English sources, the king suggested that the new Earl Swain join him in a joint raid of David and Istrad Toei as an act of revenge for their treachery. And Swain leapt at the chance. What better way to demonstrate that he was ready to lead the family than to undertake a serious political and military engagement with the freaking king of Gwyneth, Powys, and Dehybarth? I mean, this was the sort of high-level action he was born for. There was only one problem. He was Swain Godwinson. And as he led the men of Herefordshire and Gloucestershire across the border and joined King Gruffith, I wonder if it occurred to him that he was committing some light treason. Earl Leofrich of Mercia was in conflict with King Gruffith, which, given his station, meant England was basically in conflict with King Gruffith. And yet the idiot fail son of Earl Godwin of Wessex was marching off to war for the purpose of enhancing Gruffith's power and territory. Nice. Now, fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on who you were, the raid was largely successful. The English sources tell us that the land was looted and slaves were seized. And of course, the Welsh sources were careful to ignore that the English were there at all and gave all the credit to Gruffith which isn't too surprising, honestly. Dragging the Saxons into our family argument was probably a bit too embarrassing to put on paper. But Gruffith's gambit worked. The treachery of Estrad Tewi had been answered. Relations between Earl Swain and King Gruffith had been established. And Earl Swain, for his part, managed to enhance his wealth by seizing Welsh treasure and slaves. All in all, it had been fairly successful. And so Swain returned to his new lands triumphant. And on the way home, while he was feeling good about it all, he passed by Leominster Abbey in Herefordshire. And when he got there, he issued an order to his men. He told them to go and fetch Abbas Aid Gifu of Leominster, which they did. And then Swain took the abbess as his new wife. 
Now, in Swain's mind, he probably assumed that this would have been a good thing for the family because through the marriage, he could acquire a Gifu's enormous estate. The problem, though, was that she was a fucking abbess, and this was a kidnapping. I mean, the dude just up and stole a bride of Christ, and even if a Gifu wanted to marry Swain, and that's a big if, the Earl was still literally cuckolding God. And I'm sure that Dad, Edith, and the family were going to be super excited when he brought home a Bride of Christ after taking a victory tour for committing treason. So, this all brings me back to that poem in the Vita Eduardi Regis. Because towards the end, the poet says this, quote, O happy world, if each would keep its course and water its own lands, with packs observed, as the celestial order has ordained. But if malignant envy breaks this pact by revolution, oh, what ruin comes, end quote. Now, at this point, I don't think there's any question who the poet is talking about. But what about the pact? What was that about? Could it be the one between God and the abbess? Could it be the one between Swain and Edward, considering they did just go to war all on his own? Could it be something else? It's hard to say. Because Swain was just getting started. Oh, look at my face. Thanks for listening. <laughs>